The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. to the Popes Against the Modern Errors on the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. I am your host, Matthew Gaskin, and on this episode I'm joined by His Lordship Bishop Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Hello, my Lord. Thank you for joining us. Oh, nice to be here. This is the second show to discuss Mortalium Animas of Pope Pius XI on the subject of religious unity. My Lord, in the first show we covered paragraphs 1 to 8 of this encyclical that you described as the most anti-Vatican II document that pre-exists Vatican II. We left Pope Pius XI as he was instructing the bishops that the Catholic faith is not a difficult thing for people to understand, which rather contradicts those who state that the current crisis in the Church is so terribly complicated and that we cannot possibly understand it, much less reach overly simplistic conclusions like Jorge Bergoglio is not in fact a Catholic. Also in paragraph 8, the pontiff goes on to reinforce that the Catholic Church still teaches that simple truth. However, in paragraph 9, the Pope, it suffices to say, is not a supporter of false ecumenism, and he argues that St John the Apostle is on his side. What are we to make of this? Well, just from the point of view of uh, review, uh, the ecumenism is the soul of Vatican II. Uh, it is uh, it animates the whole thing, and it is the first expression of something yet deeper in Vatican II, which is relativism. And in this encyclical, he t- speaks about that exactly that that this is something repeating the doctrine of the modernists, which makes relative all of the dogmas of the Catholic Church, whereas the dogmas of the Catholic Church are absolute truths. So relativism is at the bottom of Vatican II, but its its expression is ecumenism. That's why this encyclical is so important, because it addresses ecumenism, which is, which is what destroyed everything. It, it, it's a contaminant that got into every single institution of the Catholic Church, uh, every single catechism. It destroyed the faith in millions and millions of people because relativism is, is something that cannot coexist with the notion of absolute truth. So that, that's just uh, by way of review and by way of introduction. So St. John uh, the Apostle, uh, who is known as the Apostle of Love because he insists so much on our Lord's doctrine concerning brotherly love and, and fraternal charity, uh, he is cited by Pope Pius XI 
uh, from one of his encyclicals where he says that if any man come to you and bring not this doctrine, meaning the true faith, receive him not into the house nor say to him, God speed you. So he is citing someone who is known for fraternal charity and his devotion to fraternal charity, his exhortations to fraternal charity, because he wants, as Pope Pius XI wants to point out, that there is no true fraternal charity without the faith, that charity is built upon the faith just as a great skyscraper is built upon some very, very deep foundations. And there is no true charity. He's saying this because people like to say that ecumenism is charity and it's uncharitable to insist on your own religion and to say that the Catholic Church is the one true church outside of which there is no salvation. That this is nasty and, and something that people don't like to hear and that we should be more loving uh, and therefore uh, compromise our, our faith you know, with Protestants and others. So he's, he's addressing that silly and stupid objection. That's what he, in paragraph 10, that's, that's what he's doing there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, he says that charity is based on a complete and sincere faith. The, disciple, the disciples of Christ must be united principally by the bond of one faith. So it's pretty clear what he's saying. If you don't have the faith, you can't have true charity and, and you must be united in one faith. You can't be united, obviously, in, in multiple faiths. That's, not, that's ridiculous. No, faith is is the ticket to the Catholic Church. Uh, The Catholic Church is one because of its single faith. It is not one because people love each other in it. Uh, It is true that it has bonds of charity, and that is the the bonds that hold it together as uh, an organization uh, where people cooperate with each other and uh, just as any organization has to have a certain amount of goodwill and charity, but it is not held together by charity as such. In other words, the, that is something that flows out of the faith. It cannot be held together merely as you know, some sort of humanitarian organization where nobody cares what you believe. The, the charity of the church that, that holds it together flows from its faith, and its faith is the most fundamental of all of the uh, bonds of union of the Catholic Church. Uh, you don't fall out of the Church by falling into mortal sin and losing the virtue of charity, but you do fall out of the Church by losing the faith and professing a false religion. Mm-hmm. He also goes through some critical differences uh, in people's faith, well, between Catholics and other uh, heretical sects, let alone uh, Catholics and and other non uh, non Catholic religions, by which I mean, yeah, you know, Islam and Judaism, and for example. But he talks about the difference between Christians, sacred tradition as being a source of divine revelation. That Catholics hold that to be true, Protestants reject it. Um, those the Catholics hold the divine constitution of the Church, and Protestants reject that. The Catholics believe in transubstantiation, Protestants reject that. And he goes through all these uh, differences and he points out at the end that unity can only arise from one teaching authority because who decides what all, what all these dogmas are? Who decides who is meant to believe what? 
Of course. Uh, we can see from the history of Protestantism what a, a headless uh, church has given us. Um, even you know, something as organized as the Church of England, for example, where you have a, at least some sort of continuation of bishops and some notion of authority of bishops, because they don't have a doctrinal authority but can only make suggestions to Protestants who decide for themselves what they're going to believe. There's dogmatic chaos. Uh, Protestantism has given up on the idea of unity of faith, that everyone profess the same thing. In this country, we hear that in most cases, the only only condition of becoming a, a Protestant is that you accept Jesus as Lord. You know, whatever that means that you accept Jesus as Lord, if you can say that honestly, then they'll let you into the Catholic Church, or excuse me, the Protestant Church. And all of the Protestants, despite their dogmatic differences, are all in communion with one another. Uh, if you're a Methodist, you can go to the, to the Presbyterian Church or to the Lutheran Church. Uh, they will admit you to their sacraments. Uh, they, they will posit no obstacle because faith, uh, profession of faith for them is, is a meaningless thing. Because precisely each, each one of their faithful is himself a pope. Because he decides for himself what the sacred scripture says. And, and his opinion is just as valid as the person's uh, next to him in the, in the pew. So it really doesn't matter. And, and uh, so they have a, a, a unity based on what you might say, an organizational charity. They, they all cooperate with each other and they, you know, they, they, it's an organization, that's all. Uh, and, but it, there's no unity of faith. And that it is so different from the Catholic Church, which accepts the teaching authority of the Roman pontiff and the hierarchy in general. Uh, that, that's what distinguishes the Protestant from the Catholic first of all of the things that distinguish those two. Uh, the is is uh, the teaching authority of the church is, is first and foremost the surrender that you have to make of your intellect to the teaching authority of the Catholic Church is really what distinguishes the Catholic. And once a Protestant accepts that, then the the doors open to the acceptance of all of Catholic dogma. Once he accepts that principle, then he will accept all of Catholic dogma. If he doesn't accept that principle, he could assent to the whole Catholic catechism with that one exception, but he's still not a Catholic because he does not accept that principle of authority to teach the faithful and to determine what is the rule of faith. We're looking at the fundamentals of our religion, and of course the, the Pope is right to point out all of these differences, and the you know the main difference is that the that the the teaching authority of the church is 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 everything. So mm-hmm. now, in the same paragraph, he's talking about uh, those who sort of subscribe to indifferentism, or as he says, modernism, as they call it. He says those who are unhappily infected with these errors hold that dogmatic truth is not absolute but relative. That is, it agrees with the varying necessities of time and place and with the varying tendencies of the mind since it is not contained in immutable revelation but is capable of being accommodated to human life. Now, obviously earlier this year we went through a three-part series on Pashendi 
and yes. it's it's so obviously clear that he has Pashendi. We mentioned it in the first show as well. But he has Pashendi in his mind when he's writing this, and the way I see these two encyclicals working together, it's like a a boxing match where St Pius X came in and fought the whole match and laid everything out, and Mortalia Manimos is just the knockout blow that finish that finishes everything off. It's not it's nowhere near as long as Pashendi, but it's very, very to the point. You can practically hear Pope Pius XI banging the table as he's writing this. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh he would he would have applauded. Well you know this this is uh, interesting that you should bring this up. I was having a, a discussion with uh, Father Ricosa a few I guess a few months ago and he said uh, something I knew implicitly but never made it explicit in my own mind. He said that when Pius X died, uh, he had suppressed theoretical modernism. But the modernists, far from giving up their modernists, turned to other things in order to be modernist. So they turned to politics, for example, and social movements and uh, like the Sion, which he also condemned, but we see these things rise up in the 1920s, uh, Don Sturzo, and uh, they turn to the liturgy in order to modernize, uh, in order to, to have their modernism. So we see the rise of the evil liturgical movement, not the good one of Dom Guéranger, but this modernist liturgical movement. They wanted, as Dom Baudouin said in the 1930s, uh, they wanted liturgy to be the vehicle of modernism. And this also this uh, uh, appeared in the 1920s. Ecumenism had always existed among the Protestants, but it, it filtered into the Catholic Church in the 1920s, particularly, because this encyclical is 1928. And it's another expression of modernism in the practical order. And I, I thought it was very insightful on Father Ricosa's part to mention that, that they they just look for different channels in which to be modernist without actually espousing modernist ideology as they did in the early part of the century. And uh, I think that this definitely uh, is the case and with uh, ecumenism. And yes, I think that this encyclical goes hand in hand with the encyclical Pascendi. This is really a, an extension of it. It is an application of it. This is the modernism of the 1920s, whereas St. Pius X was facing the modernism of 30 years before. But uh, as we know, it never died. And unfortunately, uh, there, there should have been more of this uh, in, the, in the next pontificate. We see some of it where Pius XII condemned the liturgical modernism in 1948, but uh, after the war, particularly, they were uh, quite active and, and returned to their theoretical modernism because there wasn't the same atmosphere of repression that there was, obviously, under Pius X, and uh, not even as much as there was under Pius XI. Uh, the, the reign of Pius XII was, was much, much easier upon them. Uh, and any kind of condemnation that did exist was purely uh, of a, a theoretical nature. As I always say, uh, you don't go out into your garden and t say to your, to your weeds, you know, really, you should stop growing. And you shouldn't be bad plants. And, and you, you should be good plants. That's not the way you handle weeds in your garden. 
you handle weeds in your garden by going in with a with an instrument and drag them out by the root. And, and so Pius X understood that with the modernists, whereas Pius XII thought that he had uh, been faithful to his duty to the truth by simply telling these people you shouldn't be modernists. And that's how all of the weeds grew during the pontificate, the long pontificate of Pius XII, and that's how we got to John Twenty-Third. So uh, just getting back. Now, another thing that Father Ricosa said, which is interesting too, is that Pius X represented, so to speak, the, the hardline party. And then the modernists, of course, in the church were the, the modernists. He says what really won out in Benedict the Fifteenth in 1914 was what they called the moderate party with regard to dealing with the modernists. And that is, yes, you, you, re, you condemn modernism, but you go softly with them. You don't uh, engage in ways of, of repressing them. Uh, you don't pull them out of their positions. You don't close seminaries. You, you don't do some of the, the very strong things that Pius X did, that uh, it's sufficient to admonish them and to tell them that they, they really should uh, get back on track that that was the moderate way of dealing with modernism, and that prevailed from 1914 to 1958, and as we know, that failed terribly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I agree with his, uh, his, uh, both of his analyses, that, that the modernists submerged into a practical modernism, and, and ecumenism was one of them, and secondly, that the moderate party, which was in power from 1914 to 1958, failed in its duty to repress modernism. That's why we have the problem we have. It's the it's those accommodating moderate centrists who are in some ways much worse than the flagrant liberals. I, I listened to one of Father Desposito's sermons a couple of weeks ago in which he said that we can blame the modernists and we can blame all the liberals in the church, but at the end of the day, it's the it's the laxity on the part of uh, a lot of the clergy and the lay people that allowed this to happen. Yes, that's absolutely true. And Pius X said it, the, the worst enemy, a number of great people said it, uh, popes, that the worst enemy of Catholicism is the weakness of the good people. When you have an enemy, you must fight him. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Yes. Uh, yeah. You don't blow him kisses. You know, you fight him. And you undo him, and you undo the, the harm that he wills to do upon the church. And St. Pius X understood that 1,000%. And that was his whole goal as a pontiff. Whereas, yes, as you say, the, the, you know, the centrists, uh, those who are a little liberal, uh, are the ones that give the store away, as we say in America, uh, you might say give the shop away, I think, in England. <laughs> they, yes, there was just, just, you know, you can have anything you want, and then uh, what's left is only the shelves. <laughs> and uh, they are the ones that do it. Historically, they are the ones that do it. Yes, they do. And, uh, and it's up to the, to the very wise and usually saintly ones to fix it up when they're done. It was the St. Pius V that, that put the church really back on its track after years and years of 
popes who were interested in worldly things and, and who just were, were not very worthy in their office. He's the one that really put it back on. And we had many, uh, we had uh, four or five, four centuries anyway, of a, a series of wonderful popes after him. But the ones previous to him were, you know, some were better than others, but some were very bad. Some were very bad. Not from the point of view of doctrine, but worldliness. It was the, the Renaissance, and they, they were interested in worldly things and uh, were not good, and they, they neglected the, the government of the church because of their worldliness. So around two-thirds of the way down paragraph nine, he talks about those truths which some people regard as being fundamental and those which are, well, perhaps a little bit less fundamental and we could maybe dispense with them. But he, he makes the point, are these truths not equally certain? He's talking about all the truths, all the revealed truths, or not equally to be believed because the church has solemnly sanctioned and defined them, some in one age and some in another, even in those times immediately before our own. Has not God revealed them all? And again, it's just a shot across the bow at the modernists to say, you have no position. You have no position to stand on. Yes, actually, this the Protestants started to say this in the 1600s. <laughs> that they, they have always been trying to put themselves back together. I don't know if you know the, the, the fable of Humpty Dumpty that fell off oh, the yes. wall. I don't, yes, you know. Oh, and all the king's men could not put him back together. Well, that, that is Protestantism. Uh, it, all the king's men cannot put it back together. And they were always embarrassed by this fact that we're, we're splitting up. You know, we, we're just, everybody's all split up. We can't get together. And there must be some way that we can get together. And, and they've been doing that since practically the day they started. So one of the ways was, oh, we'll settle on fundamental articles and non-fundamental articles. And then they started fighting about which ones are the fundamental articles and which are the non-fundamental articles. Well, of course, because <laughs> there's no one to, to decide these things. There's, there's no ultimate court, you might say, to decide what is fundamental and non-fundamental. Also, the idea, as, as Pius XI points out, of having... Articles of faith, some of which are necessary, some of which are optional, as that would suggest, is ridiculous because the motive of believing is the same. Just as, you know, if you believe, you know, somebody's account of an accident or something like that, the motive of belief is the same. It is the same person speaking. So if you accept one thing that he says, you must accept everything else that he says because your motive of belief is the same. Just as uh, as I the example I often give, and people probably get sick of my repeating myself, but when you have a good example, it works well. Uh, so when you pick up a can of soup in the supermarket, right, your motive of belief is always the same. <laughs> and that is, if it's the same can of soup, I believe that this is the the same soup I bought last week. And when the motive is the same, then obviously the assent must be the same. And, and when your motive of belief is God revealing and the church proposing infallibly, that is, with the power to teach in his name, then you must believe everything that comes down from the church with the same belief. So, you know, it doesn't work in the Catholic system. It doesn't even work in the Protestant system because they start fighting about it. 
because each person is a pope. How can you yeah. have a, an agreement about fundamental articles when each person is a pope? Any more than if every every single person in a kingdom were a king. <laughs> you know, everyone goes around with a crown on his head and a cape on his back. Uh, you know, <laughs> and and what sort of political chaos would you come up with uh, with something like that? Yeah, I'm not sure that would really work in England. I don't think. I don't. I don't, I don't think we do very well if we had 60 million Queen Elizabeth II. I think so. <laughs> uh, so uh, you know, it, it, yeah, it's it, it's absurd. The whole thing is absurd. That's the only word to put on it. So to finish the paragraph, uh, Pope Pius XI says, "But in the use, he's talking about the teaching authority." But in the yes. use of this extraordinary teaching authority, no newly invented matter is brought in, nor is anything new added to the number of those truths which are at least implicitly contained in the deposit of revelation divinely handed down to the church. Only those which are made clear, which perhaps may still seem obscure to some, or that which some have previously called into question is declared to be of faith. Yes. So, just before we we talk about that, the he says in in there something that you didn't say, that the teaching authority of the church is daily exercised through the Roman Pontiff and the bishops who are in communion with him. That's the universal ordinary magisterium, which is exercised, as he says, every single day. The church is constantly teaching, in a universal way, constantly asserting its doctrines through the catechisms, through preaching, through the approval of certain books and various other ways, through the sacred liturgy, which teaches concerning the truths of the faith. So this is going on all the time. It's, it's, like, a, it's like breathing for a living animal. The church is always, always teaching and always uh, telling the, the world what it should believe in, in this, uh, in fulfillment of this solemn duty that it has, uh, and in and it also defines in certain cases where certain doctrines have been attacked by heretics. It's mostly, in almost all cases, the occasion of what we call a solemn definition. The church does not ordinarily issue a solemn definition. That's why we call it extraordinary magisterium, uh, because it's only when usually there is a heresy. Sometimes it will also define when there's been some controversy even within the church concerning whether the thing is a dogma or not, whether the, the subject matter is a dogma or not. Uh, that was the case of the Immaculate Conception. There, there was no real heresy uh, that was prominent in any case concerning the Immaculate Conception, but there was controversy in the church, and one of the purposes of the Roman pontiff is to settle dogmatic and, and religious controversies. Uh, that, that's, that's why he's there. Uh, and so he did settle it with uh, the, the Immaculate Conception. Another motive might be simply to, to emphasize the doctrine, and that is uh, the case in the Assumption. The Assumption was believed by the whole church and professed by the whole church. Uh, but the Pope Pius XII, in order to glorify it more, we might say, made it a, an object of solemn definition. Uh, mm -hmm. So, no, nothing is new. The Church always has to draw from its two sources of revelation, sacred scripture and tradition. It cannot invent anything, and it cannot change anything once it is 
taught by the church. The church merely proposes. It does not invent. It's something like the waiter. He doesn't cook the food, but he brings it over to your table. And uh, so also the church does not, you know, grow the food. It does not cook the food, but the church does bring it to your table and then tells you this is what you should eat. That's, uh, that's the point he's making there, that, that uh, you know, the Pope doesn't sit there and make up dogmas. Mm-hmm. Okay, so are, we, are you happy that we've completed paragraph 9, my lord? Are you happy to move on to paragraph 10? Yes, I think we're there, yes. Okay, so in paragraph 10, the Pope talks about the belief, the fact that belief in the true faith establishes genuine unity. Uh, he talks about the unity of Christians can only be promoted by promoting the return to the one true Church of Christ um, for those who have unhappily left it. So if you'd like to walk us through this paragraph, my Lord. Yes, he says the apostolic see has never involved itself in these ecumenical meetings and and has always remained aloof from all of the uh, things that the Protestants had been doing in the 19th century and had invited the Catholic Church to. Uh, the Pius the Ninth uh, was invited to participate in something, or you know, by his representatives, but uh, declined uh, because, as he pointed out, it's just it's just something that that goes against the very interior grain of the Catholic Church. It's just not possible. Uh, and and he says very very uh, correctly that the only way that you're going to see unity of Christians is that they return to the one true Church of Christ from which they all separated. They were all once Catholic. There was originally only one Christian church. They separated from it. Why don't they come back to it? Uh, uh, You know, it's so easy. That's the way you're going to have one Christianity. So, you know, they have uh, left the house. They have stolen things from the house. And now that they're living apart, they want to come come and say, well, why why don't you recognize the fact that you know, you're our cousins or something. No, that's not the way it works. You come back to the true faith once you have left it. And he points out that the Catholic Church has never been contaminated by error and has always remained the same. That's so very important for the Catholic Church, and it is what we constantly insist upon with regard to Vatican II, and that is continuity. That the Church cannot make this claim that he is making here, that it has persevered in the same doctrine for all of these centuries, if you admit Vatican II. We just uh, recently had Amoris Laetitia, where adulterers are permitted to receive Holy Communion. That goes against apostolic moral doctrine. St. Paul explicitly calls uh, adultery to, to marry someone who's already married, he says adulterers will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he says, if you receive the Holy Eucharist unworthily, you are guilty of the body and the blood of Christ. That's in the epistle, so it's apostolic doctrine. If the church turns its back on apostolic doctrine, it can no longer say what Pius XI is saying here. If the church loses that sacred chain that golden chain of continuity in doctrine and moral teaching and liturgical practice and disciplinary practice, if it loses that, it loses everything. It becomes a phony church. And that's why Catholics have to insist in these times on 
rejecting Vatican II and, and all of its reforms as something that has been the effect of aliens and uh, intruders coming into the church and, and assuming positions of authority and trying to change the church into something that the modernists want it to be. Uh, so that's, this is a very important point here in the encyclical that, that the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church alone can say, we have not changed. You are the ones that left it. And we're going to remain the same, no matter whether you're with us or not with us. So um, <clears throat> he cites St. Cyprian, he sa- uh, who says, This unity of the Church built upon a divine foundation, knit together by heavenly sacraments, could never be rent asunder by the conflict of wills. So that's a very important point, uh, is that the, the true unity of the church is that they return. And, you know, it's... Uh, somebody asked me the other day, uh, referring to the, these questions that these four cardinals gave to Bergoglio about Amoris Laetitia. Somebody said, you know, why wasn't this done at Vatican II? Why didn't cardinals and bishops get together and present questions to Paul VI? about Vatican II, uh, pressing him for an interpretation of the documents that was in accordance with Catholic tradition, if, if that could be. I, it can't be, but <laughs> it was, if ever there was a time to do it, it was then. And uh, I, I think that the, it's a very, very good question, and really things would have been much different, I think, if they had. I think the response to that is that there was such a feeling of precisely the continuity of the Catholic Church, that everyone thought, well, it's just impossible that these things contradict the Catholic Church. You have a general council saying these things. If I don't understand how it goes together, it must be something wrong with me, because a general council under a pope could not be saying something contrary to the Catholic Church, which of course is true. See, so that was the, the, mm-hmm. the general presumption. And I remember as when I was 13 years old, we had to do for our religion class uh, in high school, uh, uh, we had to go and cut out the, some articles about ecumenism. And I naively thought at the time, well, this, is, because of everything that, that the church was and is, you know, 1963 that was, I thought, well, this is an attempt on the church, you know, a greater attempt on the part of the church to bring Protestants back into the Catholic Church. <laughs> That's what I thought the Vatican II was all about, that it was going to, uh, you know, turn up the heat, so to speak, on trying to draw more Protestants back into the Catholic Church. <laughs> so little did I know, being 13 and naive, what the, the, the wickedness was behind ecumenism. I had no idea, but uh, I remember cutting out those articles and thinking, you know, in my, I guess, stupidity at the time, but I would call it presumption of the orthodoxy of the Pope and the orthodoxy of Vatican II, that, that this was the case, which of course would be a noble thing to, to make a special effort to bring Protestants back. Of course, it's a wonderful thing. But uh, so that's what he's talking about: is that the Catholic Church? Uh, yes, that's the way to achieve Christian unity is is through through those means. You know, so that that's uh, you know, just a little history there for you that goes back uh, what fifty some years. <laughs> so. 
so it was it was just assumed at the time probably that any kind of focus of mental energy on that sort of thing would be pointless because of course that would never yes happen. It, it, the, the power of Pius XII's papacy was so strong and I remember it he, he was you know he's hardly human you know in the, in the sight of you know uh, the yeah. it was so strong that the any idea of deviation from the faith coming out of the Vatican was just unheard of you would never even think it mm-hmm. and Again, you would give every kind of of benign interpretation to anything that they said. Now, you know, this may not be true of people on the inside, you know, who were at Vatican II, and I'm sure they saw things and knew things that the average person didn't know. But uh, clergy, everyone, you know, the lower clergy, uh, was just uh, giving to Vatican II uh, all of the presumption of orthodoxy. Uh, and that lasted for years. Uh, I mean, uh, as a, as in my teens, uh, I was a, a Novus Ordo conservative. You know that, that somehow or other this all makes sense, and there's some sort of thing that I don't understand about it uh, that will be will come to light later on. And, and I, you know, the presumption was given to orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that that's the the reason why I think that there was no. Question: There were no questions given to Paul VI and, and so forth. Although, uh, you know, in hindsight, I would I would call them guilty on that, though, because they uh, Taviani and others knew a lot about Montini, knew a lot about Roncalli that we know now. They knew what was behind Vatican II that we did not know then. Uh, so I think that uh, I mean I blame. Them the most for Vatican II, the 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 conservatives in the Curia, Ottaviani and Bacci and others, who knew perfectly well what was going on and did nothing, uh, and and kept their silence. If ever there was a time for, let's call it a, a revolt of the cardinals, it was then, and they could have averted the whole thing, and they just kept their silence and let the whole thing happen. So, yes, I think history will judge them very, very severely. So on this subject of Christian unity, I'd just like to ask a quick question just to put this in context. We see Bergoglio desperate to go over to Sweden and celebrate Luther, Martin Luther, with the the Swedes and uh, to join in with all the Lutheran worship. Now, if the church was in in its normal condition and... I let's say, for example, Father Desposito is my um, is my parish priest, and you are the bishop of the diocese. And Father Desposito discovered that I had gone to an Anglican church one day for Evensong, which is, of course, their low rent yes. version of Vespers. What would be the normal reprimand? What would be the normal uh, what would be the normal censure for me? Well, you would be told by the pastor that you committed a mortal sin uh, of uh, communication in sacred things, uh, that you also gave scandal, uh, or very probably gave scandal by doing so, and that by participating in a non-Catholic service, according to canon law, you are suspect of heresy, and that if you uh, continue in that, uh, that you would be uh, notified and then 
excommunicated uh, by the bishop. That would have been the, 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 the channel to go because uh, you automatically incur suspicion of heresy by participating in non-Catholic worship. And that, that's very serious. It's like being suspected of murder. <laughs> you know, it's not like, oh, well, you know, if you're a suspect, uh, that's not very good. <laughs> uh, and it, it has an automatic trigger uh, that, that uh, of, you know, if there's repeated actions, then, then it, it... But the, the bishop would have to move against you. Uh, and excommunicate you. So it was not an automatic excommunication or anything like that. You would, there would have to be a process like that. So through pertinacity, I would be If you continue to do it, you would be denounced to the bishop. And if the bishop, if he were vigilant, according to law, would excommunicate you. Yes. Yes. So yes. <laughs> let it not be uh let let nobody listen to this show say they didn't know what would uh what the normal censure would be when when they watch Bergoglio yes. do what he's going to do. Now that's year. that's a- active participation. There's something called passive participation which is simply to sit there. So let's say you were you know st- student uh, studying uh you know Anglican hymnology or something like that for some reason. I mean, you could go for that reason, but you can't give scandal. So if, if scandal were to arise, then you could not do it. But uh, if you were simply to sit in the back and take notes or something like that, where no one would think that you were, um, you were participating in any way, uh, then that, that's legitimate. But if you were to give signs of participating, singing hymns and doing other things uh, that an average person participant would do then you are considered to be actively participating and that's that's the the sinful way but even for passive participation you need a serious reason would i need dispensation no it's just the moral law you don't need a dispensation you you just need a serious reason and right. uh when in doubt about the serious reason uh, the priest should be consulted so uh, it usually applies to uh, weddings and funerals. That's a serious reason. Right. But not just anybody's wedding or funeral. If the wedding is not valid, for example, if it's an adulterous wedding, which could easily take place in an Anglican church, uh, yes. then uh, you can't go. Uh, or if it's a funeral for a Freemason, you can't go. Uh, or some other public sinner, you couldn't go. Uh, you, you can never give scandal. That's the the point. It's the same thing as going into a Protestant church. A Protestant church, from the point of view of the Catholic church, it has the same sacredness as a train station. So walking into, say, St. Paul's in London is the same as walking into Paddington Station, as far as the Catholic church is concerned. I mean, <laughs> it's just a pile of bricks. And and but uh, it could give scandal, you know. Uh, so and you're not allowed to be there. You're not allowed to visit Protestant churches if there is a service going on. So I, I may have told you the last time I was in London that the, the I made it finally to St. Paul's, and sure enough, when I got in, a service was starting. And so this Anglican divine came over to me and, and said, uh, you know, would you like to join us? You know, because he saw how I was dressed. And I said, no, thank you. I'll come back later. I didn't want to get into it with him, you know, but he was so anxious to see me participate in, in their Anglican service. I don't know what it was. It was around noontime. I don't know what they were doing, but... Uh, 
just w- one of the few worst possible people in the world <laughs> yeah, <never> yes <laughs> yes yes so yeah i was horrified but i you know there, there was my one opportunity to see saint paul's and then the second one was with stephen heiner where he talked to me so much during the whole visit that i couldn't really look at anything so we went through the whole cathedral and he was talking to me about all sorts of things about true restoration and, and so forth and so it's the third time was with you when finally i got to see some things and uh, so we got to see the english fest that is st paul's yes yes the the uh it's it's uh, amusing how they become sort of england museums you know with all of the people who contributed in some secular way to to english greatness you know it's a, it's a big uh, mausoleum essentially uh, and not much religion in it you know uh, no, more, it's very it's it's very neoclassical humanist isn't it it's very yes. very humanist when you walk around it yeah it's like a pantheon it reminds me of the pantheon in paris where there's all of these figures of the revolution not that there's figures of the revolution. I mean, there's more honorable people, I would say, in St. Paul's than there, than there are in the Pantheon in Paris. But nonetheless, they're just secular figures. I mean, when you look at Westminster Abbey, too, it's, it's a collection of bodies in there, uh, uh, some of them good, some, most of them awful, uh, of, <laughs> of you know, figures, uh, just secular figures. It gives you a, a feeling about the whole religion, you know, that it's sort of a... A religion of England, you know, it's a, a kind of a worship of England. That, that's what comes off of it when, at least, you know, to a foreigner, uh, that, that this is all about England and not about God. Uh, that, that's that's <laughs> the feeling you get from it, you know, it's, uh, it's unusual. Uh, I mean, the only people you see buried in Catholic churches are their bishops, uh, and mm. and there's not so much prominence to it either. You know, it's uh, it, you know, it, it, when you walk into a Catholic church, you know who's there. <laughs> so. Yes. Yeah. Whereas the uh, the Anglicans tend to have nice, they have nice monuments to famous generals and admirals mm-hmm. who did great things during the uh, 18th and 19th centuries. Yet the two largest tombs in the in the whole place, as you know, my lord, are. Uh, nelson's and mm-hmm. uh the duke of wellington's yes and they're very and they're very plain which i must admit was something that i didn't uh i didn't know the significance of that until he pointed it out to me when we were standing there so uh yeah they were they were in a in a club should we say yes yes uh yes the the freemasonic tombs are supposed to be very simple and i may have pointed out to you the tomb of joseph the second in austria which is among these you know, very, very elaborate coffins in the Habsburg uh, crypt, we might say. And uh, his is just a plain box. So we know which club he was in. Yes, so they were all in the same club, yes. <laughs> we would like to remind you that you are listening to Popes Against the Modern Era's Mortalia Manimus Part 2 on the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Matthew Gaskin, and I'm joined by His Lordship Bishop Donald Sanborn of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, Brooksville, Florida. Today we've been discussing Pope Pius XI's encyclical, Mortalimanimus, on religious unity. We want to remind you that this Popes Against the Modern Era show is a production of the member-supported Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail at truerestoration.org. Moving on to the next paragraph, my lord. Um, 
one starting furthermore in this one church of christ no mm -hmm. man can be or remain the which is a wonderful sentence let's read it furthermore yep. in this one church of christ no man can be or remain who does not accept recognize and obey the authority and supremacy of peter and his legitimate successors beautiful beautiful so uh let's go from there uh, he, he talks about the errors of Photius. Photius was the initiator of the Greekism uh, and the reformers. And he says, didn't they at one time obey the Bishop of Rome, meaning the Pope? Weren't they submissive to him in their youth? And did not their ancestors submit to, to the Roman pontiff? Uh, the, the, uh, and that was, again, uh, going back to the English cathedrals uh, visiting Canterbury, the number of papists who were in Canterbury. <laughs> so it is so bizarre to see Catholic saints enshrined in statues and stained glass windows and all of these Catholic saints who are, in principle, detested by the, the Anglican establishment. It makes no sense whatsoever. They should have well, all been ripped out, but they, well, they like... Nobody ever to, said that Anglicanism had to make sense, my lord. <laughs> they, they want this pretense of continuity with the, the Christianity before the Reformation, that, that somehow they are the same thing as before the Reformation, yet at the same time they have nothing but, but the, the vilest words to say about anybody who was submitted to the Roman pontiff. You know, it makes no sense whatsoever. So I thought that was... Uh... They view themselves as Catholic, but Reformed, don't they? A lot of them. And whereas in actual fact, it was not, it was not a Reformation, it was a revolt. Really, they're not Catholic and they're revolting. But still, they were, their Catholic ancestors were submitted to the Roman pontiff. They cannot deny that. <laughs> These people that are in their, in their churches and that they venerate St. Anselm, for example, St. Bede the Venerable, who's in Durham, uh, the, they cannot uh, deny that he was submitted to the Roman pontiff, uh, the, uh, Saint, Saint Augustine of Canterbury. Uh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, the most obvious one. <laughs> and uh, so it, it, it just ma it makes no sense whatsoever. The whole thing is, is so mixed up and absurd that, that it's just... St. Thomas of Becket in Canterbury Cathedral. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, all of these papists. There's probably more papists in there than there are Anglicans. Uh, so, I mean, the only Anglicans are, you know, these bishops that you never heard of, uh, you know, from the Baroque time and all. I mean, uh, the, but the, the real personalities in there are the papists. There was even a statue of St. Gregory the Great, who was Pope. <laughs> I mean, here they, they were putting to death people for submitting to the Pope. I mean, how, how many thousands of people went to their deaths in England for submitting to the Pope and holding out for the Pope? And yet they have statues of these people in their cathedral. Uh, you know, it's just... Uh, it's, uh. But they've never, they've never been terribly consistent. Even the worst of them, even Elizabeth I, wouldn't uh, execute Shakespeare or Bird or Talus. Yes, because they're right. brilliant. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yes, they managed to escape the the uh, the rack uh, because yes, they had talent. Yeah, 
And she was the one, too, reputedly, who threw out the Anglican priests at her deathbed and told them that they were not priests. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> yes. Well, I have, yeah, I've heard that story. Of, you know, well, maybe she should know. I'm sure mm. she got her, um, well, we, we can be absolutely certain that she got her reward. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> so, uh, so that in par paragraph 11, Pope Pius XI is talking principally about Christian unity. And he makes the point that he, he says Christian unity is essentially so easy that he doubts the sincerity of those who claim to want it. Because it mm -hmm. can be so easily achieved. We uh, have an expression, I don't know if you have the same in England, but having your cake and eating it too. Mm -hmm. the, the Protestants would like to remain Protestant, but at the same time be united to the Catholic Church in some way. Uh, and that's known as having your cake and eating it too. Uh, yes. That is, uh, we would like to be cozy with the Catholic Church and even call ourselves Catholic, but at the same time not submit to the teaching authority of the Catholic Church. Uh, so again, it, it's absurdity. It's 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 something that would never work. Uh, it, it just is impossible. And and the Pope is saying it here. And and let let them return, and we'll 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 give them every uh, opportunity to return, and we'll bend over backwards even to let them return, as the Church did in many cases with. Uh, uh, groups that had separated from her in the past bent over backwards to to accommodate them and, and tolerated things that ordinarily it wouldn't tolerate as far as you know certain practices that they had and uh, certain things that that they invented during their schism you know the church never accepted anything contrary to faith but it did accept certain rites that they they invented it had to fix them up it had to put in the proper uh, sacred theology and doctrine in in those rites, but uh, you know, in in general way, accepted what they had. Uh, so, uh, and it would accept everybody, the 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 bishop, or the priests, and the people together in one fell swoop. Uh, and as I point out uh, many times, that the Catholic Church was far more successful in reconciling non-Catholic sects to itself before ecumenism. Uh, there's a whole history of it, uh, uh, many cases uh, of reconciliations, but true reconciliations, whereas the 50 years of ecumenism has given us nothing except a chocolate Martin Luther. <laughs> you know, in the Vatican, uh, which makes no sense either for what all the things that Martin Luther said about the Pope. It makes no sense whatsoever, but we're living in an age of absurdity. Yeah, we're living in an age where people are comfortable with absurdity. So. Yeah, chocolate is sick, sickly sweet and not very good for you. <laughs> no, no, it gives you a heart attack. <laughs> but you can just, you can just hear the, um, you can hear the Pope speaking. In the middle of that paragraph, he says, and this is what I mean by, um, he sounds like he, he's doubting the sincerity of those who are, who are bleating about Christian unity. He says, for if... As they continually state, they long to be united with us and ours. Why do they not hasten to enter the church, the mother and mistress of all Christ's faithful? These ecumenists from both the Novus Ordo side and the Protestant side was the same thing as far as I'm concerned. 
but they they're constantly going on about religious unity but it is so easily achieved yes it is it is uh, not the way they want it you can tell that the Novus Ordo wants to essentially dissolve Catholicism into a humanitarian non-dogmatic religion it is searching out in, among Protestants people of the same kind of mind that you know, we can have a dogmaless humanitarian religion, we can put it all together, and uh, we can be all one. That, that's what they're searching for. As a matter of fact, the Protestants have more sense of dogma than, than the modernists do. I think the Lutherans actually uh, accused Bergoglio of heresy at a certain point, that he said something heretical. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah, I, I read that recently, uh, and that, you know, they couldn't go along with that. They have a certain sense of doctrine, and uh, whereas the modernist has no sense of doctrine whatsoever. So they're looking for something entirely different from Catholicism, and you know, the idea of, well, they even state it. This is not a question of conversion. This is not a, 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 the idea of bringing people into the church. This is a, a question of amalgamation and, and of, as I said, dissolving the, the borders of the church. And and, and becoming one with, with non-Catholic sects. I mean, that, that's really the, the ultimate goal. And, you know, they, like all uh, one-worlders and dreamers and socialist dreamers, you know, they, they think that all of this is going to end up in a type of Eden on Earth. And it isn't. It's, it's all f- going to flop. And I'm just hoping that the, that the political... Atmosphere, which is turning on the one worldism since the 1960s, that uh, mm-hmm. since even I'm going to say Wilson and Versailles, this one worldism and this this international socialism. Uh, yeah, the League of Nations. Yes, I mean that it's really been a, this is like a hundred year revolution that is going on now, and I think it's only starting. Uh, this, this, I would call it a counter-revolution, and it's against the socialist dreamers. Yes, I'm hoping that something will, will penetrate the brains of Catholics to say we're finished with Vatican II and its dreaming of some sort of dogmaless Christianity, and you know, we want to get back to our roots. I, I'm hoping it, it translates into that, uh, and so that we can drain the swamp in the Vatican. I certainly see a I certainly see a political movement, and I haven't had a chance to uh, well not on Restoration Radio anyway to uh, comment or and at least congratulate you. I know we've spoken privately, but I want to congratulate you and all of the uh, American listeners who managed to dodge the bullet. Trump is by no, by no <laughs> means the by no means the perfect candidate, but oh, Hillary was so much. Well, worse. it's it was not it was what what he is and what he represents that was elected, not so much Trump himself, yes, but what he represents that was elected. And, and uh, I think that's significant. I think the, it, it, it's not so much who was elected, but who elected him and what they thought. Uh, I think that was uh, more the, the, the uh, that's where you really see the, the strength of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was just there at the right time. And, you know, uh, I saw somebody point out that really, he was saying all the things that Pat Buchanan, who was a, he's a Novus Ordo conservative Catholic, mm-hmm. was saying back in the 1990s, but it was just not popular enough then because socialism and all of the other 
you know, the globalism had not reached its peak as it has now. And people were not sick of it at that point as they are now. Uh, but he's really saying all the same things, you know, non-interventionism. We're not going to, you know, bomb everybody and all of this stuff. You know, he gets a lot of cheers when he says that, you know, we're, we're just going to fight wars that in which the interests of the United States are at stake and, and not, you know, everybody else's interests. And all. Mm-hmm. So I, it's refreshing to see that. And I just hope you know, we'll see that it might translate, you know, uh, into into something where where people might uh, religiously go back to roots and and shrug off all of the things that are being condemned in this encyclical. Don't forget this is on the heels of Versailles. One worldism, one religionism. Peace after, after World War I. Uh, world War I was such a shock to the whole world, and especially Europe, uh, that there was this peace movement. Uh, the, the, there was actually a new silver dollar made in this country called the Peace Civil, Civil, uh, Civil, mm, Silver Dollar with you know this image of you know, Mrs. Peace or something like that on it. But it, there was a kind of mania for for peace in that uh, at that time and and uh, in the political sphere and it it translated into ecumenism in the 1920s and I, I'm kind of hoping that that some of the uh, feeling that has been manifested in the political sphere uh, will will manifest itself also in the religious sphere we'll see if it does uh, I'm sure you saw what happened in Italy that uh, yes great. That the Italians rejected overwhelmingly uh, a constitution that would have made it, quote-unquote, more European and more EU-friendly. And uh, that, that was uh, a real rebuke to the EU. I mean, yeah. And that's a significant economy in the EU. You know, it's not like Luxembourg. Uh, that, that is a significant economy in the EU. And, and uh, so I, I think they're a little worried. And then, you know, some of the other elections that are happening next year in Europe uh, will be interesting to watch too. Yep, France, Germany, it's going to be very, very interesting to watch. We're hoping that um, Brexit, Trump, then Frexit, hopefully, and then hopefully Merkel <laughs> will be kicked out. Um, yes. it, Italy, another card has fallen there. It's, it's, it's <laughs> yes. you know, we get so much bad news. I'm going to at least enjoy it a little bit at the moment. <laughs> Just, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Now what what happens what happens in England? I mean, you have that odd system where, you know, when the when the support falls apart in Parliament, then you have an election of a prime minister, right? Isn't it something like that? Yes. The what could happen at the moment is that the uh, Theresa May, the prime minister and the leader of the Conservative Party, she could call an election to get a parliamentary mandate to drive Brexit through, because of course, because of course, I see. Of course all the leftists and the and the socialists and the dreamers, as, yes. as you described them accurately, um, are they're all in trauma still. They haven't quite got over it. Um, and, and they're trying to do yes. whatever they can yes. to stop yes. Brexit going through. I don't think they can. Yes, yes. And they're now asking for parliamentary oversight to see the terms of... Um, the terms of Brexit, and they want the uh, t- they want Theresa May to make the government's position clear. But obviously, that that's a, a totally ridiculous thing to ask for because if you're going to go into a business negotiation, you don't tell the opposition exactly what your position is before you go to the negotiating table. Um, but that's but that's of what course. the Labour Party seem to want the government to do, and the Liberal Democrats. So I don't think. Um, 
if you look at the parliamentary wards, it was something like 70, uh, although the the actual referendum result was 52-48, if you look at the parliamentary wards, it was something like 70-75% of parliamentary wards voted for Brexit. So it'd be a very, very brave set of MPs who would uh, vote against Brexit and try to overturn it. I so yeah. I think yeah, that um, I think that we'll be okay. I, I've got no I've got no major concerns at the moment, but we shall see. They'll I do their see. best. They'll do their best. They yes. always do. But when when do you when do you elect a, a prime minister? I mean, it's, it doesn't seem to be any term for them. No, there's no no there's no term limit. It's not like in the United States where there's a two term limit. No, there's no term limit on um, on the prime minister. But in the end. As we saw with Thatcher, uh, eventually the cabinet will turn on her and, and or him or her and, and just say, you know, you're a bit long in the tooth and we don't feel that you represent us. <laughs> we don't feel that you represent us anymore. Really? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's, that's how it that's works. That's exactly huh? how Thatcher was got, gotten rid of. By the cabinet? Oh, yeah, by the cabinet. Or they lose a general election. Uh, so major, oh, obvious, I see, I see. major obviously lost to that reptile Tony Blair. Um, and then Tony Blair resigned the um, the office of prime minister to that equally reptilian Gordon Brown. Um, oh yes, he um, he's just a non-event. Nobody, no, you know. Oh, do you remember Gordon Brown? Oh yeah, wasn't he the prime minister for? A while? <laughs> yes, that's right. That's about as much as I can remember about. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we're going to keep this conversation in the show, but I may well do. People, I don't know. Maybe people might want to listen to it. Skip it on if you don't like it. Well, <laughs> well, let me tell you. My I put out a newsletter recently with Donald Trump on the front page. And everybody just scooped it up. I mean, if I had the Sacred Heart out on the front page, I don't. I think they would still be there. But when they saw Donald Trump and I was talking about the election and politics, that, they're gone. And everyone said to very, many, many people said to me, "Oh, I really liked your newsletter." I never get compliments usually about the newsletter. Once in a while, but this one, you know, wherever I went, oh, your newsletter was great. So. People are interested in these things. So. Well, I'm, I must say, I took a very keen, in, from a you know, as a Brit, uh, I took a very keen interest in uh, the United States election because whatever happens in America does affect the rest of the world. And talking about the military, you know, even as America's one of the closest allies, and apparently we have a special relationship. I think Trump does actually believe in that. Um, yes. As a, as a Brit, you know, I must I must say, looking at America as depleted as your military is, it's still abs. And this is coming from an ally. It's still absolutely terrifying. It's it's mm-hmm. still absolutely terrifying to to think about the uh, the power of the U.S. military. So, yeah, I think that Trump is going to do if he does half of what he says he's going to do. I think he'll be a very very good yes. thing. And at least you're not going yes. to to go running down the socialist uh, path that uh, no that Clinton would take. So unless he down. turns on his promises, I doubt that he will though. I don't think he will. But we have we have Mad Dog Mattis in charge of oh, the he's, Pentagon. He's great. He's great. He's a he's a fighting <laughs> yes. soldier. That's what you want running the military. You want a guy who knows how to fight. Yes, yes. So so he'll build it up. He'll he'll, he'll it's about the best person he could ever choose. Yeah, I think he said he, he called going to wear a hoot, didn't he? He said it, he said it was a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> he's a, yes, apparently yes. he's a lifetime bachelor, just a marine through and through and now I think again another yes, another excellent yes. pick. 
So his quotes are interesting, but some of them are unrepeatable. Yes, but they're very interesting. <laughs> it shows his, you can look at them on the internet. Shows his state of mind. <laughs> yeah, I think they should carry carry a health warning. <laughs> so let's get back to the um the subject in hand was um i was just going to pick up very quickly before we finish that paragraph on what you said about the lutherans being scandalized about uh something that Mm -hmm. uh, bergelio had said so and it, it took me back to a history lesson that you gave me once about the fact that the a lot of the Protestants in um, 18th century North America, around the time of uh, the Constitution and build, building the country, were scandalized mm-hmm. by the Deists and the Freemasons who wanted an officially secular state. So we're now in a position where the Protestants have been scandalized by the Freemasons and the Deists on one side, and Bergoglio on the other side. <laughs> they're, they're, yes. they're practically in the same yes. boat. Yes, yes, it is. It's funny how things turn, how ironic it is uh, that uh, that that should take place like that. Yes, but uh, again, uh, Protestants have not had their Vatican II. You know, they 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 have not. They're not a a tremendous organization like the Catholic Church uh, that has been infected by a single germ. And so they, there's still people in there that have some sense of dogma, uh, you know, of, of let's call it Christian dogma, things that you can find in sacred scripture in any case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it's amazing that, that they would find him heretical. <laughs> incredible, incredible. So I forget what the point was, but it was well taken when I, when I saw it. It was well taken, uh, but I just can't remember what it is. Okay, my lord, are you finished with that paragraph? Are we ready to move on to the penultimate one? Yes, yes. Okay, so in this paragraph, he's effectively saying to the Protestants, submit to the Roman Catholic Church. He said, the church will forgive all all your injuries and welcome you, uh, welcome the return of lost children with open arms. Yes, yes. The church has always had that attitude toward anyone that was separated from her. Uh, has it's uh, just like the parable of the prodigal son, and the church has always accepted back anybody that wanted to come back. And uh, but you know you have to make your submissions, you know, and, and you know to to you can't put a, a a round peg into a square hole, and and you can't remain a Protestant and be a Catholic too. You can't remain uh, schismatic and be a Catholic too. It, it just doesn't work and. You know, that's of course common sense, but you know, we need an encyclical to remind us of common sense. And that's how bad the human race is. <laughs> so, you know, of course, you know, yeah, it's like being married but not married. You know, it's just, it's just uh, it doesn't work. It's a contradiction, and but we're pretty dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <it's> a- <laughs> It's a binary position, isn't it? You're either Catholic or you're not. You're either pregnant or you're not. Yes, yes. You can't be a little pregnant. <laughs> okay. Is there, is there anything in that paragraph you particularly like to pick out, uh, my lord, or shall we? Because in the final paragraph, he just gives the apostolic benediction. Yes. No. He's pretty much finished, uh, and uh, he's finished with them too. Uh, and that's one of the beauty, beautiful things about this encyclical is that it's short and to the point. You know, he, he strikes uh, very clearly and poignantly 
uh, there's not a lot of verbiage in it. And it's just uh, about one thing and and he condemns it roundly and and it's very clear. Mm -hmm. I think I compared it in the first uh, episode about this encyclical to it's an espresso shot of uh, Catholicism. It's just uh, (laughs) it's a short, sharp hit of truth. And um, yes. I'm, I must admit, of all of the encyclicals we've covered this year, we've covered Rerum Navarum Pascendi in this one. Um, this one has been probably the easiest to read, but also just the most condensed, the most packed with uh, with information. And um, I've really thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope the listeners have too. Yes, yes, it is one of the... Uh, uh, I reiterate that it is... Th- the one encyclical that is most against Vatican II. Mm-hmm. So I think that draws us to the end of the show, my Lord. As we close out the show, I'd like to thank your Lordship again for joining us and for your time and being with us today. Is there anything else, I know we've just summarised, but is there anything else you would like to add before we close out this episode? Well, if you're a Protestant, you should become a Catholic. That's what I would like to say. We'll leave it at that. So. <laughs> no. And you can listen to my apologetic show if you want to become a Catholic. That's also on true restoration. <laughs> Certainly is with, with, with Phil Stone. And hopefully, yes. hopefully we'll, we'll be joining him later in the month, down under. Yes. And I'm sure, yes. sure we're both looking forward to that very much. <laughs> well, some more than others, let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm happy to go there, and it's just getting there is not going to be half the fun, as they say. Uh, they, uh, I mean, e- even though they've paid for business class for me, and I'm very grateful for that. The the thought of that 14 hours out of Los Angeles just to get to Sydney, uh, it is is uh, is a you know I've never done that. I've done 12 hours. I did San Francisco to London, and I thought I was going to go crazy. That's 12 hours. So this is 14. And then, you know, that's on top of the five hours that it's going to take me to get to Los Angeles from Florida. So, but you have it worse. I mean, you're, you're you know, I, you, you're, you have a longer trek than I do. It's you're pre- going eastbound. It's pretty right? much 24 hours in, in the sky or, or changing at Dubai. It's pretty much 24 hours. Well, I'm the same. I'm the same. I'm, I'm 24 hours in travel, yes. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, and uh, it's not. Yeah. It's not great. God did not put Australia in a very convenient place. No, I think. I think no, it's uh, when I get my chance, I'm going to ask him why he did it. <laughs> and and I'm just thinking, you know, it, it, what about sailing there in the 19th century? How did the how did they do it? You know, those voyages to Australia. Just imagine that. It must have taken months to get to Australia. Well, it's funny you should say yeah. it's funny you should say that. It wasn't exactly about Australia, but uh, I've shared some I shared a, a picture a painting recently that I bought where well, it's a print of the Battle of Trafalgar. Um don't mm-hmm. don't don't tell the French seminarians. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's a, it's a really very nice painting of uh, HMS Victor in the Battle of Trafalgar. And um, mm-hmm. I was we sh- I shared it on the communication tool that we use with the other restoration true restoration hosts, and I said this was in the days when ships were made of wood and men were made of steel, and uh, uh, yes, and I think yes, that was yes. it. They just you know that's that's how they that's how they did it. That's how they got on with it. You know, you, it's it's where posh comes from. Um, you know, the, the word posh, because if you were traveling yes. if you were traveling to Australia, you would take the port outbound and starboard home. So P O S H. Yes. Yes, yes, to keep out the sun, effectively. 
Um, yes, yes. I think about that when I, put, I choose a seat, you know, on a plane. <laughs> I do. I think about posh. I do. Yes. yes. So you have, but I mean, that's only for eight hours, and this is this is, uh, you know, it yes. would take two weeks to get to South Australia from Plymouth. Ugh. Yes. Oh, and wow. it's just going all the way, all the way. And, and actually, I think that's under that's under steam now. That's if you just kept yes. on going. So under sail, I think it was more like a month or two. Oh, yes. And conditions on those sailing ships were not very nice. Well, hopefully, my lord, when you come to England next year, we'll take you to HMS Victory and you can see for yourself. Yes, that's. I'm very much uh, hoping to see that. Yes, very much. Okay, well, once again, my lord, thank you for your time. And we will talk to you again next year now um, as we will continue this series next year. So... Again, thank you for your time, my lord, and may God bless you. Thank you. If you have any questions for Bishop Sanborn or feedback on this episode, please contact us at moderneras at truerestoration.org and we will pass along your questions or comments to his lordship. All of us here at Member Supported Restoration Radio hope that you found this show to be informative, helpful or beneficial to you and to your faith. In return, please think of offering a mass, a rosary or even simply an Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the restoration, I am Matthew Gaskin. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.